Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, the writer says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently, with tears. The chapter began with an illustration about our Christian walk. Remember, it's like a contest, like a race that we run in verses 1 through 4. We run the spiritual race that God has marked out for us. We fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the starting line. He's the finishing line. Jesus endures the opposition of sinners. He dies on a cross. He does it for the joy that's set before him. He's now seated at the right hand of God. Next, the writer spoke of chastening, discipline, the need to accept God's discipline in our lives. For what reason? To prove that we're children and also to prove his love. Discipline produces righteousness and peace in verse 11. And so now the author of Hebrews is going to present a series of challenges. We're to pursue peace in verse 14. We're to seek to live a clean and holy life at the end of verse 14. We're to be on our guard against bitterness and unbelief in verse 15. And the sad and tragic story of Esau is offered as an example of what not to do. Esau was immoral in verse 16 and godless in verse 16, despising his birthright in verses 16 and 17. And later in the chapter, the writer will present a contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in verses 18 through 24. He's going to offer another word of caution about the terrible consequences of unbelief in verses 25 through 27. So what's the writer trying to tell the reader? In part, in this particular section, he's trying to tell us that God's discipline should lead to holy living. And holy living leads to harmony in the world in which you live. And so let's look quickly our great duties as believers in verse 14. He says, and I quote, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Think about what you're reading. The followers of Jesus pursue peace. We've already learned a little bit about this. We're to be peacemakers. 
not peace fakers, not peace breakers. Often we have two choices. We can be a peacemaker or a troublemaker. And sadly, some of us choose to make trouble. And remember the context. It includes the idea of peace in the midst of persecution. Remember, I've already talked about that. These people are hurt. These people are in trouble. These people are suffering all kinds of difficulty. And so think about that for just a moment. Because when he says pursue peace with all people. You might be thinking, you mean even with the people who are persecuting us? People who are hurting us? People who are marginalizing us? Or people who are threatening us? Yeah, the Bible says pursue peace with all people. Paul at least gives us at least an option in the sense where he says, so far as it's possible in the book of Romans, he says, live at peace with all people. Paul understanding that sometimes it's not possible. But if you get to be in charge, if you get to be in charge of whether or not there's going to be conflict or peace, he says, pursue peace. The Hebrew Christians are under enormous pressure to defect from Christ and Christianity, to abandon grace, to go back to failed religion. Living in peace doesn't mean surrendering truth or abandoning biblical convictions. So when it says pursue peace with all people, it's not talking about pursue peace and abandon Christ, abandon truth. That's not what it's saying. You see, part of what I think the context is telling us is that when you're hurt, when you're afraid, when you're in pain, when you're vulnerable, when you're at risk, sometimes you're willing to make decisions in order to make the pain go away. And so you compromise. But that's not what he's asking. Matthew Henry said that peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it but truth. He's willing to pursue peace, but he's not willing to abandon truth. And and look at that word because it's going to be important. It's going to set the tone for the rest of this particular section. The word translated pursue or follow is a Greek term. It's diokete. It meant to run after, but it means more than just to run after. It means to run hard or chase or pursue. It is an energetic word. In law enforcement, you've probably heard the expression, we are in hot pursuit. You all know what that means. It means that you are actively chasing after someone who desperately needs to be caught. That's part of the point. We rarely think about the acquisition of peace and holiness as something we aggressively pursue. But you would be right if you think, is he asking us to aggressively pursue peace? 
and holiness? And the answer is yes. From time to time, we sing about it. Remember, we sing to know and follow hard after you, to grow as your disciples in the truth. We say this world is empty, pale, and poor compared to knowing you, our Lord, to, to know and follow hard after you. That's part of this. It means to pursue. It means to be energetic with your mind, with your heart. We want to be civil. We want to be kind. We want to be courteous. We want to be respectful. We recognize and comply with legitimate cultural customs. We try not to pick fights. Christians aren't given special permission to be rude or unkind. Some people might say, I have the gift of being blunt. Praise the Lord, I guess. But that doesn't give us permission to be rude or, or thoughtless. And by the way, if you're looking at this, my, what I'm wearing, you can't blame Miss Mary Geraci. She didn't dress me today. See, this is what happens when I, I, I'm wearing black pants and I'm thinking, well, black will go with anything, right? And I guess not. So if you're, if you're looking and you're going, why did Mary dress him that way today? Don't blame her. I am completely at fault tonight. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason why we can enjoy peace and experience peace. And the writer can say we can pursue peace because the moment that you receive Christ as your Savior, there's the promise of peace. Billy Graham used to call this a lasting peace. He talked about peace with God and peace among men and peace among the nations and peace in your hearts. And remember, peace is more than just the absence of conflict. It's the settled assurance that because of Christ, I have a right relationship with God. And because I am living my life in humility and integrity, I can have peace with the people around me. So we desire peace. We promote peace in our conversation. But even as we desire peace and we promote peace, it's okay for us to say, is this true? Is this kind? Is this necessary? Because almost nine times out of ten, the source of conflict isn't going to be, quote unquote, the other person. It's going to be our mouth. It's going to be the conversation. My... I, t I think I told you guys on Sunday that we're trying to digitize the photographs from my family. My grandmother died, my mother died, and my grandmother was in charge of the family photos. And all of the family photos she had, she passed on to her, to, to my mother, who was the oldest uh, daughter in a family of five, and then they passed it on to me. So I've got all of these pictures of my granny. And my granny drilled it into, into, into our hearts. She said, if your lips 
you wish to keep from slips, five things observe with care, to whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how, and when, and where. Did you have a grandma like that too? She was just like a preacher. She would say, watch what you say, because it matters. And if you're going to pursue peace, you have to be willing to look inside of your heart and ask what's in there. There's the pursuit of holiness. And so when he says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, in broad terms, there are two kinds of holiness. One is positional and one is practical. All who are in Christ Jesus are holy. Remember what the word means. It doesn't mean better than everybody else. And it doesn't mean perfect in your conduct. It means set apart from sin and set apart towards God. There is a positional holiness in the sense that the writer of Hebrews has already described true believers as holy brethren in chapter 3 verse 1. Positional sanctification refers to our position in Christ. When you come into a right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you experience the cleansing of sin, the washing of your heart, and the placement into the kingdom of heaven. So much so that when God looks at you, when God sees you, he sees Jesus. And that's what makes you holy. And this is why the New Testament can, without breaking a smile, call us saints in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. John Phillips writes, and I quote, But our daily conduct may not be in keeping with our divine calling. So we're to follow after. That is, actively pursue sanctification. By deliberate choice, we're to seek cleansing from daily defilement. We're to deliberately choose those things that make for godliness. Pursuing practical sanctification is the proof that we possess positional sanctification, unquote. Let me help you with this. What that means is that positional sanctification takes place the moment that you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. You are positionally set apart from sin to God in Christ. And because Jesus is your life and because Jesus is your love and because Jesus is in your heart, you can pursue practical sanctification. And what that means is where you say, you know what, because of the life of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the presence of Jesus in my heart, I get to say no to sin. And yes, to grace, to mercy, to patience, to kindness, to peace. Jerry Bridges wrote a whole book entitled The Pursuit of Holiness. One of the quotes in that book says, To be holy is to be morally blameless. 
It is to be separated from sin and therefore consecrated to God. The word signifies separation to God and the conduct befitting those who are separated. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, pursue holiness, what he is basically saying is, you get to run hard after what it means to know and love the Lord. So if you're running towards Jesus, you have to be running away from sin. Jerry Bridges gets it exactly right. F.F. Bruce says, and I quote, Christian holiness is not a matter of painstaking conformity to the individual precepts of an external law code. It is rather a question of the Holy Spirit producing his fruit in the life, reproducing those graces which, seem, which are seen in perfection in the life of Christ. Let's... See if we can make sense of what F.F. F. Bruce has just said. Christian holiness is not a matter of painstaking conformity to the individual precepts of an external law code. It's his way of saying holiness isn't because you keep the rules and the regulations. It isn't because you say, okay, I'm going to do what the Bible says. I'm going to, I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to cuss. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do bad things. Holiness isn't just simply a question of refraining from doing the bad things that you used to do, but rather it's a question of allowing the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, reproducing the character of Christ. It isn't you saying, you know what, I've decided to give that up. It's you saying, I've decided to love and care about everything that Jesus loves and cares about. That's what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, I came across a quote when I was preparing this message by John Stott. He said, quote, I could never myself believe in God if it was not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it, unquote? What, he, what Stott is basically talking about is the reality that God becomes a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. He takes on flesh and he lives in this broken world knowing that he's going to go to a cross, knowing that he's going to experience pain and problem and difficulties because he anticipates you, your life, your circumstances. And so he goes from these duties, pursue aggressively peace, pursue aggressively holiness, to the great dangers that we face. 
in verses 15 through 17. Look at verse 15. It says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. What in the world is he talking about? When he says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, the writer of Hebrews is using that expression, looking carefully, in the same way that the old King James translates this, looking diligently. It's a Greek word which meant inspect, watch, take oversight. To see something. But when he says looking carefully, it means to look in such a way that you can see what is really being asked of you. And so when he's saying looking carefully or inspecting specifically, it's a warning. And the emphasis is on the critical nature of the dangers associated with neglecting or ignoring what you're seeing. It's every time you see a sign that says, watch out, be careful. And it's, it says, this is dangerous. There are dangers, the writer of Hebrews is saying, when we neglect peace and holiness. I want to pause there for just a moment. Because we've just talked about how the writer is saying, I want you to aggressively make peace a part of your life. I want you to aggressively make holiness a part of your life. And remember what I said by that. It means running away from sin. It means running into the arms of the Lord. It means adopting and embracing the character of, of Christ. What happens? What happens? What are the dangers if you neglect peace? What are the dangers if you neglect peace with God and peace with each other? What happens if you neglect holiness, but rather embrace selfishness, sensuality, and carnality? And so it's in that context that the writer of Hebrews reminds us of God's grace, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. He's going to visit this subject again in verse 28 down at the bottom when it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom in verse 28, which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. He's talked about grace in the past. He's going to talk about grace in the future. He will visit the subject again as he contrasts Moses and Christ, Sinai and Mount Zion. He's going to contrast the giving of the law, the old covenant, and the giving of Jesus, the new covenant, and the covenant in his blood. In brief, when the law was given at Sinai, it was given in fear and terror. The mountain was covered with smoke and fire. When God spoke, people trembled. But you have this experience in Christ, the writer of Hebrews, is going to remind the Hebrew Christians. Remember, you, you had an experience of growing up as a Jew in Judaism, but you've also had this experience where you recognize that if you come to Jesus by grace through faith, he will love you and accept you. 
And that's very, very different. Jesus, our life. Jesus, our peace. Jesus, our holiness. Jesus, our priest. Jesus, our home. Jesus, the source of our fellowship. And so when he says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest you have forgot what he means by that, what is that? What is the grace of God? Remember, it's the kindness of God. It's the favor of God. But it's not just simply kindness, and it's not just simply favor. It's, it's different from ordinary kindness and ordinary favor. This is the kind of kindness and favor that is absent merit, undeserved. It is kindness and favor not based on anything that you have done. But for whatever reason, he looks at you. The Lord looks at you and loves you and cares about you and decides to be kind to you and impart grace to you. God does what is unheard of. He imparts Grace in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives you a mechanism and a remedy for your sin, for your circumstance, for the person who's dying inside, who is empty and lonely and hurt and filled with doubt. So grace involves giving to people what they don't deserve as a free gift. And so what does grace do? It gives the opportunity to be saved from sin, from the condemnation and the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. Now think about this. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. What does grace do? It gives you the opportunity to be saved. How can we fall short of the grace of God? I want you to think about this for a moment. Because the writer of Hebrews isn't suggesting that a saved person is fallen from grace. That's not the point of the passage. I think that the point of the passage is that if we neglect this grace, if we ignore this grace, if we despise this grace, remember the peace and the holiness comes from Jesus. Jesus is the person who has been given to us. And so think about this for just a moment. The Lord does not compel, the Lord does not force his love on anyone. He doesn't demand that you come to him. He doesn't say, I'm going to turn you into a piece of toast if you don't. He doesn't grab you by the neck. He doesn't afflict you with diseases 
in order to get you to comply. He doesn't use trickery or manipulation. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman, wooing, inviting, extending the invitation. And since God doesn't force his love on anyone, and since God doesn't force people to be saved, sinful human beings are allowed the opportunity by their own free will and their own free choice to embrace God's gracious offer or to reject God's gracious offer. And so what's the danger? The danger might be that people accept the invitation to join a church or to be baptized or to profess Christ or become religious or to make amends, to say I'm sorry for who I was and what I did. And in your mind and in your behavior, you think that you're changing your conduct, but you fail to experience a true change inside of your mind, inside of your heart that is noted by the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of your life, you fail to experience the true change of heart, the true change of mind, the true change of soul. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.17, in whom we have redemption. We've been bought back from the marketplace of sin. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5, by God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace are you saved. Earlier in the book of Hebrews he talked about how can we neglect so sure a salvation. So what is the danger? Is this a danger of falling from grace? And I'm going to suggest to you that in the context of the passage, again, this isn't a person who runs the risk of losing their salvation, but rather this is a, a believer in part who refuses to avail himself or herself of the means of grace. When you're a Christian, when you're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you've experienced the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the presence of God in your life, the Bible says that you've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness and the knowledge of Jesus. So what is it about us? Why in the world wouldn't you avail yourself of grace? Why wouldn't you allow the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit 
to so inform your heart and your life that you're filled with peace and you're filled with joy and it's motivating you to abandon sin and run directly into the arms of God and in the arms of Jesus Christ and so that your life is marked by peace and marked by joy and marked by holiness. So the unbeliever or the make-believer or the bitter apostate who doesn't avail himself or herself of the grace falls short of salvation by neglecting or rejecting God's gracious invitation to be saved. And so again, the invitation is always given. Won't you come to Christ? Won't you abandon your sin? Won't you embrace Jesus? So part of what the writer of of Hebrews is suggesting is that we fall short of salvation by neglecting or or rejecting the invitation to be, be saved. So instead of cultivating peace, cultivating holiness... The person who falls short of salvation, who neglects God's gracious gift, cultivates something else instead. Any root of bitterness springing up, causing trouble. Look again in verse 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any, any root. The word any can mean every, lest any root or every root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. This is the key, by the way. The key is any cause of bitterness. Bitterness towards who? In the context, the bitterness seems to be directed by some towards Christ, towards Jesus, towards the gospel. Remember the big message of this book. The big message of this book is a group of people who are struggling whether or not Jesus really is what the New Testament says, whether or not the gospel really is true. And many of you have heard the gospel over and over again. You've heard the gospel. God loves you, that sinners need a savior, and that Jesus died on the cross, and that he rose from the dead, and you're filled with doubt after doubt after doubt after doubt after doubt after reason after reason why it possibly can't be true. Jesus can't possibly be the Savior. The the gospel can't possibly be true. And instead of holiness and, and instead of peace, people pursue bitterness. Bitterness can be caused by anything. Or any person who's failed us, who's brought disappointment to us, who trouble us in any way. And for some people, that bitterness seems 
at least in part, to their false way of thinking to be coming from God. God, why did you hurt me? Why did you betray me? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Bitterness can be caused by anything or any person who's failed us or brought disappointment to us or trouble to us. Bitterness can come from a mom. It can come from a dad. It can come from a brother. It can come from a sister. It can come from a priest. It can come from a preacher. It can come from a teacher. William MacDonald said apostasy is a root of bitterness. Apostasy is the idea, I'm not going to believe God. And I'm not going to trust God. And I'm not going to believe the Bible. And I'm not going to trust Jesus. And I'm not going to trust the gospel. The word apostasy means a person who has made the settled decision not to trust God and not to trust Christ. Instead of peace or holiness, some people pursue with aggressive passion bitterness. And the truth is, if you're bitter towards Jesus, and if you're bitter towards the, the gospel, if you're bitter towards a person, if you're bitter towards the church, if you feel slighted, neglected, overlooked, bitterness can come from an accident or a disease or mistreatment or loss. And you become embittered. And this embitteredness leaks into your soul and like a seed it takes root and then it takes hold and then it begins to spread throughout your heart and by the way it's fairly easy to profile the bitter person let's see if we can list some of their characteristics sharp critical Resentful, cynical, cold, harsh, stressed, intense, relentless, unpleasant. And you know what's interesting about bitter people? The bitter person is reluctant to keep their bitterness to themselves. And I want you to think about this. Because it's important. I need you to make the connection just for a moment. If you're living a life of peace, peace can be contagious. If you're living a life of holiness, holiness can be contagious. This is what bitterness and holiness and peace have in common. The bitter person just like the peaceful person and just like the holy person, they don't want peace by themselves and they don't want holiness by themselves. The bitter person doesn't want to be bitter all by themselves. They need to include you in the process. In the book of Acts, we read about a confrontation that Peter has with a man called Simon the sorcerer. Most of you are familiar with the story. He's also called Simon Magus. According to the book of Acts in chapter 18, verse 12, Simon the sorcerer believed Philip's preaching. 
So he hears a gospel message. He responds to the gospel message. He's baptized. He watches in amazement the manifestation of signs and miracles. There's a prayer to receive the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money in verse 18. And he said, give me this power also so that anyone in whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter told him, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in the matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you're poisoned by bitterness. Bound by iniquity. There was something not quite right with that guy. He wanted all of the benefits of being a Christ follower. He also wanted power and glory. But he didn't want to take the necessary steps in humility, to make sure that his heart was right, that it was a heart that longed for peace with God and peace with those around them, the pursuit of holiness. And apparently Simon Magus was bitterly, bitterly, bitterly disappointed. So what does the Lord desire? I think you've already seen in the passage when the writer of Hebrews says, pursue peace, pursue holiness, avoid bitterness, I want you to think about that for just a moment. What does the Lord desire? The Lord desires that we be filled with joy, that we be filled with peace, that we be filled with holiness, not bitterness. And in verse 16, he says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau for, for, who, for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, again, in this context, he's going to bring now an example of what he's been talking about. The word fornicator is a broad term and it describes anyone who's sexually immoral. So when he says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person, and we're going to get that to that in just a moment. But again, I want you to think about what he's basically saying. Because what he's basically saying is that when a person doesn't pursue peace, and when a person doesn't pursue holiness, and when a person embraces bitterness, then that probably means that sexual immorality isn't far behind. And what does this mean, the word fornicator? It means any kind of sexual expression outside of marriage. And somebody might say, well, you know, homosexual marriage is now legal. So does that mean homosexual expression is now honored by God? And the answer can't be yes, because 
There's no such thing as homosexual marriage. That's like if I said, I'm a Christian stripper. <laughs> this is an oxymoronic statement. You, you can't be a Christian stripper. You can't go, yeah, I take my clothes off for Jesus. I know my clothes don't match tonight, but I'm not going to take them off in front of you. I'm just going to go with the mistake that I've made. And so when he's talking about fornicator, he means a kind of sexual expression that is prohibited in the Bible. The Bible allows for sexual expression in the covenant of marriage. The point apostasy, immorality, bitterness are closely connected. Again, William MacDonald writes, a professing Christian may fall into gross moral sin. Instead of acknowledging his guilt, he blames the Lord and falls away. Apostasy and sexual sin are connected to each other in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, and then again in verse 14 of chapter 2, and then again in verse 18 of chapter 2 in 2 Peter, in Jude 8, in Jude 16, in Jude 18. Why does he bring all of this stuff up? Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. He's giving an example of a person who doesn't pursue peace, doesn't pursue holiness, but who has embraced bitterness. And so what does that mean? Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a profane person? We live in a culture and a society where we use the word profanity. I'm going to guess everyone in the room knows what profanity means. If I said, tell me what you think profanity is, most of you would say, I think it means cussing, swearing. If your grandma, like my grandma, said, stop swearing or don't use profanity, or you, you had a granny... <laughs> Who championed profanity. I don't know. The Greek word is interesting. It's the Greek word bebelos. If you want the English alliteration, it's B-E-B-E-L-O-S. Bebelos. What does that mean? It means the opposite of holy. It means unhallowed. It means that which is absent holy. And so if we were to put it in a, in a contrasting way, if spiritual is holy and carnal or sensual is unholy, in this particular instance, profane means that which is absent, that which is holy. And so what that, that's what that means. In essence, it means to neglect that which is spiritual, to embrace that which is sensual. And so that's when he gives the example of Esau. What's the point of Esau's example? 
For those of you who are unfamiliar, the story is found in Genesis chapter 27. And I don't have time to read the whole thing. But if you get a chance in Genesis chapter 27, you just go over there. In verses 1 through 46, most of us know the story. Isaac is 137 years old. He believes he's close to death. When's he really going to die? At 180. I mean, it, it seems pretty... It's okay. I think if you hit 137 and you go, I don't have long. I, I think that that's okay. But he really has a long ways to go. But he's impatient to impart the blessing to Esau. And, and, and so he wants... For those of you who remember, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac's wife gave birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. He, Isaac wants to impart Esau with the blessing. But some people forget the prophecy that was given in Genesis chapter 25. In verse 23, remember the Lord spoke to Rebekah and said, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Rebekah had been told by God that Jacob was going to receive the blessing. Isaac was aware of the prophecy, but schemed and plotted to make sure that Esau was going to get the blessing. Now think about this household for just a moment. Isaac knows about the prophecy, but he still favors Esau. Rebekah understands the prophecy and favors Jacob. And she will scheme. She knows that God's plan and God's purpose and God's future lies with Jacob. But she is going to participate in an act of deception because she is going to try to get God's will, but not God's way. And sometimes Christians do exactly that same thing. They try to make God's will come to pass in their life, but they're not willing to submit to God's plan. And she's going to pay a horrible price for it. After Genesis chapter, after that, that chapter, she's never going to see her son ever again. He's going to run for his life. He's going to raise his children in a faraway place and she's never going to see them. She's never going to see Jacob alive again after this. And Esau deliberately acts to hurt her. There was a time in Isaac's life where he was willing to pick up a stack of wood and allow himself to be altered, offered on the altar of God. There was a time in Isaac's life where he was willing to die for the Lord, but for some reason, for some reason, he ignored God's prophecy and God's promise. And Esau was tricked. And Jacob took the blessing. And the Bible says that he sought the blessing with tears. 
but there was no real place for repentance for his sins. Remorse, yes. Repentance, no. And some people get scared when they, when they read that passage. When it says, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And some people might read that passage and go, you mean it's possible. You mean it's possible that I could be really, really sorry for what I am and for what I have done. And that I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to the Lord. But God isn't going to accept me. That's not what this passage is saying. And in order to help you understand what the passage is saying, you have to understand what's at stake. In verse 17, it says, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it. The key to understanding this verse is that tiny little word, it. Though he sought it diligently with tears. There are two possibilities of what it is. Is Esau seeking repentance and then was denied repentance? Or did Esau seek the blessing? And was denied the blessing. And the right answer according to the book of Genesis. Is that he sought the blessing. And was denied the blessing. Esau wanted to inherit the blessing. Not so much the blessing of being the priest in his family. Not so much the blessing of being the instrument of God. To bring Christ into the world. Esau wanted the property. He wanted the material benefits of being the eldest, but he didn't want the promise of the Messiah. He wants all of the spiritual benefits of having Abraham as his grandfather and having Isaac as his father, but he doesn't want the responsibilities of believing the promise of God for the Messiah. And the principle remains the same. When the believer who throws away spiritual opportunities in order to indulge in, in carnal desires, they're going to pay a price. You see, here's what's happening. What's happening in the text isn't a person who with all of their heart wants to come to God but are denied acceptance by God because God just in a fickle way says, you know what? I'm not going to accept you. That's not what's happening in the text. The Bible says if a person really, really wants to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior, they can. Someone once said that the world does not so much need a definition of religion as much as it needs a demonstration of religion. And what Esau wanted was all of the benefits of the blessing without the responsibility to pursue peace and holiness and faith, trust in the Lord. And the Hebrews would have been familiar with the command 
of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 29, where it says in verse 18, so that there may not be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, that, that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. In verse 19 it says, And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober, unquote. What in the world does that mean? As though the drunkard could be included with the sober. The idea being... The person who's abusing alcohol and who is drunk, who says, I'm a drunkard, but I want you to pretend like I'm sober. I want you, I'm using, but I want you to pretend like I'm clean. I'm sinful but I want you to pretend like I'm saved. You see, there's a profound difference between remorse and repentance. And I've given you this illustration over and over again. Judas was sorry that he betrayed Jesus, and then he went and he killed himself. Herod was sorry that he offered to his dancing daughter-in-law half of his kingdom. And she said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the Bible says he was sorry that he made the deal. And then he cut off the Baptist's head. Sorrow that leads to your death or the death of somebody else is not repentance. Esau was sorry that he didn't get the blessing. But he never experienced a change of mind and a change of heart and a change of life. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If you refuse to pursue peace and holiness you run the risk of embracing bitterness and bitterness in the end will darken your heart and darken your soul and distance you from grace. So what's the solution to bitterness? Pursue peace. Pursue holiness and allow your confidence to be in Jesus. Will people disappoint you? Yeah. Will churches disappoint you? Yeah. Will governments disappoint you? And everybody said, yeah. But we can't embrace bitterness. It's not who we are. It's not what we do. The big question that I want to leave you with is this. 
Will you trade spiritual things for earthly things? Will you do exactly what Esau did? Will you exchange what you know to be true in Christ for something that will always be temporary? Always temporal. Always fleeting. Never permanent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for the person who, for whatever reason, has lived a life of perpetual disappointment, ongoing bitterness, refusing to let go. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would remind them that Jesus loves them. And that they not fall short. Christian, there's sufficient grace to move you in a different direction for the non-Christian, for the unbeliever, the make-believer. Don't fall short of the grace. Don't just long for spiritual things or religious things and fail to acquire lasting peace lasting joy cleansing from sin and the ability to run straight into the arms of God Lord we thank you for this passage for the duties to pursue peace and holiness and for the danger to watch out for bitterness in Jesus name Amen. Let's stand.